the neutral strip. This was the outer darkness. On the southwestern fringe of Kansas, the night was darker and more primal than it was in the more settled lands back east. The wind was like the wailing of some nameless being that had always been and would always be. All other sounds were awash in this howling, and so lost to the man that crouched among the tall, rippling buffalo grass. The blackness rested heavily over the plains and consumed everything earthly. Above him, the heavenly artwork of the Almighty spoke testaments in a silent and nameless tongue. The man viewing this masterpiece dismissed it as immaterial to his passage, and therefore as meaningless as the gibberings of the savages that had once ruled this land, but no longer did. Can't track in the dark, can you? Flint spoke quietly to the Merc, daring it, as well as the man who tracked him. The other man was also alone in this moonless and wind-blown expanse somewhere. They were both little more than waifs in a sea of grass and hills, Flint guessed that he and the other, whoever he was, were the only living men for miles. They weren't equal in their wanderings, though. The man had a horse, and Flint was afoot. A couple more miles, and it won't matter. He was nearly there. Somewhere ahead, in the dark, was the Cimarron River, but it might as well have been the Jordan. Beyond was the Promised Land. They called it the Neutral Strip. It was the land that separated the Republic of Texas from the western prairies of the fledgling state of Kansas. Before the mapping fingers of the United States government had reached this far, it was part of the great grassland stronghold known as Comancheria. To a man on the run, it was simply a refuge. Whatever brand of bounty hunter was after him, Flynn expected he wouldn't follow him into the Strip. It wasn't as certain as the sunrise that would come soon, but it was Flint's best bet. The gray dawn found him at the river's bank, but he wasn't alone. About fifty yards away, standing stock still by the water, was the big pale shire. The leviathan of a draft horse was the wrong kind of mount for the open plains. The thing was bred to pull heavy loads. Its ancestors had been bred to carry heavily armed knights into desperate battles. It wasn't bred to chase down bandits and cover the great American expanse. Again, Flint marveled at his pursuer he had never seen. He had seen the horse tethered outside a saloon in Dodge City. Again, he had spied it at a church in another little Kansas town he'd blown through on his way down. Never the rider, only the horse. What the man wanted him for, Flint could only guess. Whatever crime it was, and there had been many, didn't matter. The stranger on the big gray horse wanted him. Badly. Flint watched with hawk-like eyes for movement, and saw none. He wrestled for another long minute with desperate and juxtaposed arguments for and against in his mind, and then he leapt. Over the small hillock he slid like a lizard, then quickly and cautiously he approached the horse. It regarded him with watchful intelligence, but didn't spook or shy. Flint's eyes caught the tracks of the stranger leading away from the horse, further down the shore of the river. 
They were deep tracks, twice as deep as Flint's own soft steps. Flint pondered that combination. A man of that colossal weight, who could also travel swiftly and dog Flint's own fleet movements over the past month, the thought made him shudder a little. As he neared the horse, he calmed it with a soft touch. Then he was on the beast and beating for the river. He didn't look back, or he would have seen the stranger follow him. The figure waded into the river as if it were no obstacle at all, his great weight drawing him deeper and deeper. Finally, he disappeared completely. Remarkably, a few minutes later, he emerged on the southern bank, dripping and steaming in the cold morning air, and started following the tracks of his horse. Flint was two days getting to Alpine. He'd done an ugly job of shaving his thick beard and chopping off his long hair. Somewhere near another river, some fifteen or so miles south of the Cimarron, he'd found an abandoned wagon. In it, he'd located a ratty coat and a worn, misshapen hat. These articles he'd appropriated into his own kit, and thus looked like a new, somehow even rougher, man. When he drifted into the dingy little town, he could see that it was, at the very least, populated. Buffalo hunters lounged on the steps of a cat house. A wagon stood in front of a mercantile. And at the end of the road, a small white church was ringing its bell incessantly. He reined the shire in and hitched it in front of the charming little body house. What's with the bell ringing? He asked the question offhandedly to the closest of the buffalo hunters. The man had a Sharps fifty caliber across his lap, and he was fiddling with the peep sight. There's a hanging today. The buffalo hunter had to rid his mouth of a large volume of spit before he answered, leaving a brown stain down the stairs before him. Just had one yesterday. The other hunter mused, pulling on a pipe. Already chomping at the bit to do it again. He puffed a few long moments. I take it you ain't local, mister. Hagen. Flint smiled at them. Flint Hagen, up from South Texas. Looking to get after some buffalo. He lied. He knew most men enjoyed camaraderie and hoped to find something in common with these two men. You like hunting and trapping? It was a mocking question put forth by the chewer. If that were my aim, I guess I'd hunt and trap. Flint started up the steps. I don't care a bit for hunting. I'm after money. Robbing banks is easier, the smoker replied, extending his hand. Flint shook it. I'm Watts. That there's low. Nice to meet you boys, Flint laughed. Outlawing can be hard on a man's health. Even around here, it seems. He nodded toward the church. The bell was still tolling. They were low, clean, hollow notes that punctuated the sleepy silence of the town. Oh, hell, here they come. Low pointed to a group coming down the street. At the front was a large black man in a wide drover hat. Behind him trailed another man bound and tethered. The pair were flanked on either side by two others holding repeaters. Didn't see a jail on my way in. Flynn observed, watching the dreary parade approach. I ain't got one, Watts explained. Folks around here figured they don't need one. 
If the crime warrants a hanging, well, they hang you. If they figure it don't, well, they tell you to leave town, or they'll hang you. Well, you got a sheriff, though. Flint fought back a smile. He enjoyed the simplicity of the frontier. Oh, just a posse. Blackjack there is a hand over at the Lazy S. Other boys are from another outfit. I don't know the name. Just cowboys hanging a bandit. If it were an engine, they'd just shoot him, but everyone else gets the rope. Watts called out to the man at the head of the group. Morning, Jack, he waved. Fine day for it. You best stay on that porch, Watts, the tall black man scowled. I ain't got time nor patience for you today. Watts took off his hat and he sat back down. He don't like me much, he grinned, nor low neither. Now, I can't blame him, Lowe shrugged. He's sweet on that black girl upstairs. He turned to Flint. She ain't sweet on him, though. I don't think. She'd not go on like she was going if she were. For the first time, Flint remembered why he'd chosen to stop where he had. How are the girls inside? Flint jerked his head toward the doors behind him. Well, tough, rough, young, and prettier than you'd expect, Watts grinned. Why do you think we're still here? Low laughed. They're money hungry, too. Hold out for a discount, because they'll give you one if you bathe first. Well, then, Flint turned quickly. I'll catch you boys later. He stepped through the doors of the house. The bell was still ringing faintly behind the closed door once he was inside. Outside, Watts and Lowe watched another man ambling down the street. This man was bizarrely tall and rail-thin. Thin didn't even quite cover it. He looked as if he'd been through Andersonville and not quite recovered. His skin was porcelain, and he looked as if he might split if he was struck. His boots were worn out, but the rest of his garb seemed to be too fine for the frontier. He walked with a long gait, too far away to be with the cowboys, but not close enough to be part of the grisly procession. Look at this nutter, Watts observed with a grin. Who's he, the undertaker? Lowe cracked loudly enough that the man looked their way. There was no undertaker in Alpine. The nameless man they were hanging would be dealt with the same as the rest of them. They would bury him somewhere between here and one of the ranches they came from. That is, if they were feeling generous. Coyotes are the undertakers out here. Maybe he's a dentist. Watts laughed, slapping his knee. It drew a weird and unsettling smile from the strange man in the road, but he didn't stop. Within an hour, Flint was wrapped up with a spirited German girl inside the cat house. She had braided golden hair and made love to him as if the world was falling apart around them and it was their last desperate act. Flint jested with her after that she was some sort of fallen angel or maybe a Valkyrie sent to spirit him on to Hell or Valhalla. He hadn't been sure which. She smiled, but didn't understand much beyond the carnal act. Flint, Watts, and Lowe were loading up a wagon with provisions in front of the general store when Jack Jefferson came riding into town. It had been three days since the hanging, and Flint had noticed that Jack came in two of those three days to call on one of the whores from the cat house. 
He rode in at a trot. Flint didn't do more than glance at him. He didn't want to paw at the man like Watts and Lowe had been. Flint could read people. He could tell that Nigger Jack, as they called him, was not a man to press on. Unlike a lot of the other folks, the man's skin color didn't bother Flint a bit. It was the Irish Flint didn't like. But he could tell by the way that Jack carried himself. He was dangerous. Deciding to throw in with the two buffalo stompers was Flint's best chance to retain a low profile. If there were more marshals or bounty men out after him, they would be looking for a lone man, not a roving buffalo wagon. Nobody around there should have been a problem, though. Local law and cowboys from big spreads around wouldn't be looking for him. They had their own problems, and they could care less what he might have done up in Kansas. All of this seemed like very sound logic to Flint, right up until Jack Jefferson turned toward them instead of toward the cat house. As soon as he saw the man's expression, Flint knew that he was going to be trouble. "'Well, good morning, Jack,' Watt started, apparently not noticing the mask of anger that Jack was wearing. "'Sure I'm gonna miss you, Jack,' Lowe put in, his back to Jack's advance. Lowe was leaning over the back of the wagon and didn't see the aggressive approachment. Jack, with both hands, reached out like a cat and plucked Lowe's revolver out of his holster." spun him around, and brought the thing across his face with violent force. Lowe went spinning into the dirt to the side of the wagon. Flint and Watts were both up in the wagon, but neither went for their guns. Assuming that Lowe was the target of this rampage made Flint calm slightly, but his feeling was short-lived. Jack lifted Lowe's revolver, cocked it, and pointed it up at him and Watts. "'Shit, fire, Jack!' Watts stammered. "'What's this about?' "'I know what you done to her.' Wildness flashed in Jack's eyes. It was something like Flint had never seen. The man didn't just look angry. He looked hysterical. "'What he done to her?' "'You mean... screw her?' Flint looked at Watts as if he were a madman. Watts was confused, still stuttering like a child. "'Hell, Jack.' She's a whore. We both had her. Flint's eyes widened. He was almost sure Jack was about to shoot. We never harmed her in any way, Jack. We don't do like that. That's not the kind we are. I never had her. Flint felt like he needed to separate himself from the two buffalo hunters. He truly didn't know what kind they were, but he'd also never seen them mistreat the negro girl inside the brothel. On the contrary, they'd both been very friendly and kind with her, as well as the other girls. I never had that girl, Jack. Never touched her. Flint said it louder the second time, hoping that the man had heard him. What are you saying, Flint? Watts shouted. You was with us. You were there the whole time. We didn't do nothing. Tell him. Watts looked back at Jack, just in time to catch a slug in the throat. Through the belch of smoke and fire, Flint saw the wildness in Jack's eyes. He didn't even hesitate after the first shot. Jack cocked the revolver again and put a bullet in Lowe's head, who had just started to come around and was climbing to his knees. The next bullet put him down again, and for good. I didn't touch that girl, Jack. Flint was shouting now, yelling over the smoke and the sound, even as Jack turned the revolver toward him. People were starting to emerge from the doorways of the town around them. You was with them. You was there. 
Jack cocked the revolver back again and pointed it towards him. Jack! The voice was high-pitched and wailing. She bounded down the steps of the cat house in two steps, with the bright crimson dress flowing behind her and her wild hair bouncing. She rushed toward them. Flynn had never even learned her name, but to him at that moment she was the most beautiful woman in the world. Cora? Jack stammered. You... you're alive? He turned toward her, the gun slipping from his hand. He sank to his knees in an instant, and the look in his eyes that Flint had seen before was gone like a cloud from a wind-blown sky. What are you doing? she screamed. Of course I'm alive. With Jack's attention captured, Flint moved cautiously. He wasn't sure what was going on or why Jack had ventilated his two new cohorts, but he really didn't care. He set the small crate of whiskey he was holding down in the wagon, and after a second thought, he pulled one of the bottles out. He... He told me you were dead. Jack was still talking. Cora was holding his hand as he muttered. Flint stuffed the... bottle of whiskey into the set of saddlebags, along with as many other provisions as his tote would hold. He slipped it over his shoulder and then swept up Watt's fifty caliber sharps and hopped off the side of the wagon. Who? Who told you I was dead? Cora glanced to Flint for only a moment, but her eyes didn't linger. Flint tipped his hat awkwardly and backed away, making for his horse. He would have preferred to take Watts's horse, but it was stabled down the street, and the shire was close at hand. Luckily, it still had the saddle on it. They had intended to use it to pull the wagon, but Flynn had not fancied lugging his saddle all the way down the street. He was glad of it now. All he had to do was tighten his cinch, toss the saddlebags over the horse. Flint was out of town before anyone had time to ask him any questions. The plains waved like a sea. Tall, swaying brown grass overpowered the landscape, punctuated by sparse, budding cottonwoods in the creek bottom. He rode low in the depth of a cut, sighing happily under the occasional shade of the tall, gnarly trees. It was warm. Spring was starting to make itself known, and the southwest wind was kicking up hard. Flynn had been wary for the first couple days after leaving Alpine, but that had worn off. He still wondered... What he had shook out back there, with Jack, his girl Cora, and the dead hunters. But he hadn't lost sleep over the deal. He was a bit of a superstitious sort, and the last several days had all but convinced him that his luck was changing. He was still broke, but that had never really bothered him before. Without a little change, though, he could not do the things that he liked. Those things were cheap. Whiskey, women, and adventure. Those were his aim. Now his aim was taking him south. The neutral strip was a fine hiding place, but there weren't many ways to earn a buck other than punching cows. Flint hated punching cows. Thieving was easier, and is what he was good at. There was too much heat in Kansas, though. That left Texas. Texas was warmer anyway, he figured. Between the dull roar of the harsh wind and his thoughts, Flint had lost himself a long while in his own head. When he finally came around, he noticed the smoke. It was thin at first, but shortly it washed over him in a gust. When he turned, he realized in a moment that once again 
he wasn't on the right horse. The flames were alive and marching toward him like a scorching column. As it approached, it swept through the grass and exploded the sandhill plum bushes like they were doused with oil. It was moving through the cottonwoods as well, jumping up to lick the very tops of the trees and becoming them. Like hellish elementals, the flames possessed and overcame everything they touched. Flint spun the gray, sunk his spurs deep, and the horse sprung forward in a sprint down the jaw. Flint could see that there, were, there was no hope of pulling east or west to get around the blaze. It extended far up the cut either way, and he was already pulling ahead of him on the flanks. To his right, three deer were sprinting ahead. To his left, a coyote had not been so quick. It was a flame and streaking across the ground, lighting up more ground as it went. When he looked back, he realized for certain that he would not outrun it on the horse. It was still a hundred yards back, but gaining. The wind was coming with even more force than before, and the draft horse had no hope of outrunning it. He had only one chance, he thought, and he made up his mind to bet on it. Pulling out of the creek bed, he made his way up and out of the flat area above. He rode until he was out of the sagebrush and under the grass. With more haste than he wanted, he went to dismount and he fell hard to the ground. The gray shied just a bit, but then stood. Ripping his shirt off in a flurry, Flint wrapped it around the horse's head, jerked down his rope, and looped it around the horse's front leg. Next, he fumbled for his pocket. Inside was the matchbox, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to make it work in the wind. He went to his hands and knees and pulled off his hat. He got low to the ground. The first match didn't light. Neither did the second and he looked frantically toward the fire. It was close now. He only had a few more minutes and he'd be lost. Finally, on the fourth match, he was able to light the dry grass. It took off quickly, spurred by the wind, and started to burn. Backing up, Flint grabbed the reins and led his horse around the small blaze that he'd started. It seemed like an eternity, waiting and watching his own fire build and burn, Finally, he couldn't wait any longer. He pulled the horse into the middle of the blackened ground as far away from any fresh fuel as he could get. Twisting the rope around the saddle horn, he pulled the gray's foot up. After a short fight, he finally got the horse laid down. He pulled a wild rag up around his face, doused it with water from his canteen, then poured the rest onto the shirt over the horse's head. Then he laid down close to the horse's neck, pulled himself as close as he could. He wanted to pray, but he didn't know how to start. As the conflagration burned over and around them, it sounded like the roar of a waterfall. The heat was unbearable and brought out ugly blisters on his exposed neck and back. He was burning. He wanted to scream, but he thought it would only spook the horse. The horse seemed to be calm, so calm, in fact, that in the commotion and intensity, Flint finally understood that it must have died. He lay there for what seemed like his whole life. Eyes clenched shut, and arms around the horse's neck, he clung to the beast as if it were a buoy in a vast, scorching storm. The darkness and the thunderous heat would not leave him. They were part of his world. They were eternal. 
Flint blinked once, twice, and again. He was alive. Around him was a sea of black and smoldering earth. It looked as if a dragon had overwhelmed the landscape. He pulled the wild rag from his face and coughed, sucking in air mixed with smoke and ash. At some point in the bedlam, he had released the rope he had been gripping so tightly. To his frightful amazement, not three yards away from him, there stood the shire. Smoke and steam rose from the horse like a vat of simmering water. When the big gray snorted and shook, however, Flint realized that it hadn't been touched. Not a single hair was singed. Flint hadn't been so lucky. His skin was burning and shivering in unison. When he tried to stand, it was too much for him. He passed out among the smoke and the dirt and the ashes. Hey! The voice sounded like it was coming from the bottom of a well as deep as Hades. It drifted into Flint's ear like a whisper. Hey! Pard! You alive? It was getting louder, but still far away. Flint's world was dark. When the water hit his face, the world came rushing to meet him. He came around spittering and sputtering. Hell fire, Flint spat. His vision took a second to come into focus, but when it did, he could see a few things. A covered porch, steps down to the prairie below, a big barn on the right, and the gray horse tethered to a post below him. Finally, a smiling, mustachioed face. I'll be damned. You're alive, the man smiled, revealing two gold front teeth, flanked by a wider smile than Flynn expected to see. What? Where am I? Flint finally landed on the right question. Crossroads, the man replied. He was coming into clear focus now. He was clean-shaven besides the long mustache, and he was wearing a ruddy felt hat. He smiled again. It was a good-natured expression that put Flint at a bit of ease. Pardoner, he laughed. You're one lucky son of a bitch. Flint's mind was still stuck in the strange answer to his first question. Where? The crossroads. He lifted his hat and he looked towards the horses. This is my place. What? Flint wasn't following as fast as the man spoke. You're along Camp Creek. This is my place. I call it the crossroads, though. There ain't but the one road. The other's not more than a game trail. Looping his hand in Flint's, he heaved and pulled him to his feet. Trappin', hunting, trading. That's my game. He kept on. I run a trade post here. Flint noticed a corral, trees to the west along the creek bottom, and a smiling mongrel of a dog wagging its tail at the bottom of the porch. Slow down, mister, Flint pleaded. How'd I get here? You were slumped over your big draft horse there, like the two of you were walking out of hell, he chuckled. I seen a couple fires in my day, but damn, that was a big one. I'm alive. Flint's sentence was a statement, not a question. Yar indeed, the man clapped his shoulder and Flint shuddered in pain. My name's Connor Flanagan. Flint, Hogan. Flint sucked in his teeth and then shook the man's hand. 
Saved by a patty, he mused. This is funny. Oh, patty my ass, the man laughed in turn. I'm an American. Despite himself, Flint couldn't help but smile. He liked the man already. Come inside, we'll get some food for you. My wife can't cook to save herself, but I fried up some eggs and bacon this morning. We'll have some to spare. While Connor's wife may not have been a cook, Flint decided on first glance that she didn't need to be. The young Mexican girl must have been in her 20s, nearly a decade younger than her betrothed, and she was striking. She had her black hair in a double braid, like he'd seen some Indians wear. He mistook her for an Indian at first until Connor introduced her as Alejandra. She was quick and easy with her smile and welcomed him enthusiastically. She was the one who patched him up. Flint wasn't sure what the paste was that she'd smeared gratuitously over his neck and bare back, and it provided a cooling effect to to his burnt raw skin. After the medicine, she'd wrapped a bandage around his torso and the back of his neck to cover the worst of the burn. Flint felt he'd never been so cared for in all his life, but he didn't vocalize it. Alejandra was unlike many other young Spanish or Indian brides Flint had seen. Most others were quiet, reserved, and sometimes downright cowering. Alejandra was none of those. Of she and her husband, in fact, she carried the weight of the personality. It wasn't a normal thing for a lady, nor would it be considered proper, Flint guessed, but he didn't care. The frontier was the place for people like Connor and Alejandra. They were people who wanted to be free, and by God, they were as free as the West and everything in it. Senor, another? Alejandra poured from him from a wineskin. Everything in the cabin seemed to be made of timber, hide, or bone. There was homemade wine aged in skins, bone tools, hides tacked to the walls, and a large bed in the corner of the room covered in big buffalo hides. The whole home smelt of tallow and cedarwood smoke. Thank you, Sonora. Flint nodded. Through the friendly, wine-fueled conversation, Flint learned that Connor and his young bride had only been married a short while. Flint had guessed this himself when he saw no sign of children about, but not long into the night he had heard the entire tale of the uncommon match. Flint had been surprised that they hadn't taken his gun, being a stranger. The revolver was wrapped neatly in a belt and in plain sight over on the shelf in the corner of the room. They all visited for a couple hours, mostly about the hunting and trapping prospects in the Strip. Flint had told Connor that he'd been recently discharged from the Army, and he was just seeing the country. Luckily, the pair was so talkative, Flint found he didn't have to spin too many more tales. Finally, after what Flint would have considered one too many rounds of homemade wine, they left him to sleep. If there was one thing that the Flanagans were rich in, it was hide and furs. Flint lay down in a comfortable cot on the opposite corner of the room from where Connor and Alejandra slept. Despite the comfort of the furs, Flint found it difficult to sleep. The burns on his back fought him every step of the way. He was a little dizzy and numb because of the wine, but not quite enough to let him pass out. He lay still as he could, with his back to the room. He could hear that his friendly new companions were finding sleep difficult as well, but for other reasons. Flint could hear the giggles and soft sighs coming from under the buffalo hides, and he did not have to guess at what the pair were doing. 
lovely. He mouthed into the silence. He was hoping they would fall right to sleep. Flynn had wrestled with what to do ever since he came around on the porch. He thought about robbing them after all of Connor's talk about fur-made fortunes. He thought about just sneaking away as they slept. Neither of the options tasted right in his mouth. Flint had never considered himself an evil person. Then again, he hadn't thought much about God either, so he wasn't too worried about being branded as such. He'd always just done as he pleased, and whether or not that fit into local norms or ordinances never really bothered him much. After a few more minutes of thought, the sighs had turned into soft snoring, and Flint rose stealthily from his cot. He'd only made up his mind about one thing. He had to relieve himself. The moon was massive, staring down at Flint like one pale dead eye as he strolled down the steps of the house. Walking several long strides away from the porch, Flint paused suddenly. Something was wrong. The horses in the corral weren't looking toward him. Instead, they had their ears perked in a different direction, looking away toward the creek that ran by the house to the west. Next, Flint realized that the night was silent. No birds whispered through the trees. No coyotes yelped in the distance. Even the big horned owl that was perched on the corner of the corral wasn't hooting. It stared at him with deliberate eyes, but it didn't hoot. Flint strained his ears against the silence and his eyes against the night. He saw them before he heard them. By a trick of shadow from the house, he guessed they could not see him. A glimpse here past the barn, a crackle of brush on the side of the creek there. A full three silhouettes creeping silently down the far bank of the creek. Bandits didn't move so quietly. Comanche or Kiowa... They did, though. Flint could hardly fight the urge to flee as fast as his feet would carry him. He might make it. If he slipped back to the porch and then to the opposite side of the house, he could run for it. It was likely he would get away. The outpost was the target, not him. The only trace of him inside the cabin was a cot. On Cat's paw, he crept to the porch. To his left was his saddle. On it would be the sharps. He grasped the rifle, pulling it from the saddle. He also grabbed a box of bullets from the saddlebag. He turned toward the dark safety of the plains, and then he hesitated. In his conscience, what little he had of one, told him he shouldn't run. The right thing to do was to wake the two in the house and help them fight. If not, they'd likely have their throats cut before they even woke. Flint's uncertainty gave way to indecision, until finally it was too late. His pathway to freedom was closed. Two more shadows were moving from that direction as well. Bile rose in his throat, and his guts turned to water. He knew the consequences of what would happen if they caught him alive. The sweet homemade wine was running down his pant leg at the thought. It was too late. He moved back toward the door, still shrouded in the shadow of the porch, and slithered back inside. Connor. Flint covered a sleeping mouth as he spoke in the man's ear. Indians, outside, here. Connor had come round with a start, but immediately slackened when Flint had breathed the word Indians. Flint handed the man a Henry rifle. 
He'd seen the gun hanging on a rack by the front door during dinner, and he'd made note of it. He'd also noted the scatter gun hanging below it, and he nabbed it as well. He left them both for Connor and moved quickly back toward the center of the room. He wasn't certain how Connor would want to play this hand, but he knew well enough that the attackers were expecting a cabin full of sleeping victims. He thought the best course of action was to go on letting them believe that, and being as silent as possible. He worked the lever on the sharps and slowly and quietly as he dared, loaded it, closed it, and cocked the hammer back. The action sounded conspicuously loud to him in the silence that beset everything around him. The big buffalo gun only had one round at a time, but the the revolver he had strapped held another five. There hadn't been time to load a sixth cartridge in the open chamber. Flint chanced to glance over the bed, and he saw both Connor and Alejandro were awake. Not only were they awake and out of bed, but both were stark naked. Alejandro nodded to him, holding the rifle toward the front door where he was also covering with the sharps. She was a different woman than he had met at dinner. In the dim moonlight that permeated through the windows of the cabin, he could see her fully. Like a nimble specter, she crossed her lithe legs sideways and vanished into the shadows in the corner of the room. Even young, beautiful, and completely nude, Flint did not see the symbol of desire he had saw earlier in the night. She looked more like a warrior than a housewife, holding the rifle steadier than even Flint held the sharps. All Flint could see of her now was the rifle barrel dimly glinting from the corner. She wasn't scared, he thought. Or, if she was, she wasn't showing it. She was flat mad. Her eyes bored a hole through the front door. Connor knelt opposite the bed, pointing the shotgun toward the back door of the place. At his feet was a revolver and a long, sinister-looking knife. It was naked and gleaming in the moonlight, paler even than the Irishman himself. Everyone held their breath and froze like statues. Everything that happened next was pandemonium. Though they had heard no footsteps, the back door swung open. Flint heard the blast of Connor's shotgun, and his own sharps touched off as well. He'd been resting his finger on the trigger, and he hadn't meant to fire, but it didn't matter. The buffalo gun bellowed like thunder and sent a fifty caliber slug through the closed front door. From the porch came a squeal the likes of which Flint had never heard. Once Alejandra heard it, she pumped two more rounds through the front door. Flint dropped the sharps and came back up with the pistol, while Alejandra swiveled to the back. Connor had cut the first man inside the house in half, but his second load hit only air. Two more men were following the first and stumbled over their fallen comrade. Connor was advancing as he shot the revolver, knife flashing in his offhand. Alejandra plugged the second enemy twice with her rifle. Connor caught the other man first with a slug from his revolver and next with the dancing point of his knife. He drove it into the man's throat and he took him to the floor. A ghastly arterial spray of dark blood shot forth, covering the Irishman's naked body in jets of murk that turned his paleness the color of shadow. Flint jerked back toward the front and found the door open. In place of the door was a rushing shadow. He fired his revolver once, twice, and again. 
The man fell in a heap at his feet. There was another behind him. Flint spent his last two rounds, but the advance didn't stop. A tomahawk glinted through the moonlight and smashed the revolver from his hand. The force was enough to smash the cylinder out of the frame and render the revolver useless. The Indian then shouldered him hard into the ground. Flint realized almost immediately that he was on the losing end of the fight. His arms and back were on fire because of his wounds, and the brave was pounding him. Flint's vision dogged in and out as fists hit him. Next, he heard a tomahawk thump into the floor by his ear. He caught a glimpse of the man as he leaned up. The dark figure was brandishing the tomahawk again and about to bring it down. He wouldn't miss this time, Flint realized. Alejandra had spent her last shell from the Henry, but she wasn't defenseless. Flipping it around, she grasped it by the barrel and rushed the man hovering over Flint. She took a long, crow-like hop and swung the gun like a club. The attacker's face turned into a bloody, caved-in mess. He was dead when the back of his head hit the cabin floor. Flint was panting. He crawled to his feet and fumbled to reload the sharp's rifle. Other than the breathing of the three inside the cabin, the night had returned to silence. Gunpowder blood, and the evacuated bowels of the dead had overcome the pleasant smell of the evening, but no others entered the cabin. As quickly as it had begun, it was over. A few days later, Connor stood on the porch, running a ramrod down the barrel of the shotgun. First the right barrel, then the left. He kept his eyes glancing to the gun, and then back up to the plains around. The man named Flint had left early that morning, even though Connor had told him not to. His burns were festering. He was feverish. He could barely climb up onto his horse. He wouldn't even take one of the Comanche ponies. Wouldn't take a revolver, a horse, nothing. He'd told Connor, when Alejandra was out of earshot, that someone was after him. That he was an outlaw. That his luck had run plumb out that he wouldn't stick around to die on Connor's porch. What was Connor supposed to say about that? Nothing. He'd only been able to stand there and watch the man ride off into the malicious country to the west. There wasn't anything out there but the great killing fields where a million bleaching buffalo bones covered the plains as far as a man could see. Past that, there was nothing until the black and red mesas that marked the end of the strip. Few rode that way with purpose other than killing buffalo or chasing savages. Fewer still rode back. Alejandra stood in the doorway, her hands protectively over her belly. She was biting her lip and trying to figure out the best way to say what she was about to say. It was too close, Connor. She finally broke the silence. Connor bristled a bit at her words. He took two shells from his vest pocket and returned them to the shotgun, snapping the action shut with a quick motion of his wrist. I know. He didn't mean to be short with her. He knew what she wanted, and he knew it made a heap of sense, but it tasted bitter in his mouth. This was his place. He had hewn it out of the frontier when few others dared to venture there, and that meant something. He was about to say something else when he saw the figure. Go back inside, get the rifle. 
Connor tossed the ramrod to the ground and grasped the scatter gun with both hands. The man was walking, not riding, down the road. There was only the one of him, and Connor could already tell he was neither Kiowa nor Comanche. Still, he was on edge. It seemed the man was walking slowly, but somehow he crossed a large distance rather quickly. As soon as Connor could make out his face, he decided he did not like the man. He was dressed darkly. A sharp black bowler hat topped his head and did not do much to shade his pale skin. He wore a black jacket and dark pants. Everything seemed to be clean except the man's boots. It was apparent he'd walked them nearly to pieces. Hello there. The dark man's voice was the cracking of ice on a creek. He stopped too far away from the porch for normality. Good morning, Connor replied flatly. Don't get a lot of friendly company around here. You'll have to excuse the shotgun. He had the gun pointed down and away from the man, but he gripped it tightly, and he could have drawn a bead on him in a moment. I can see that, the stranger laughed. It was a strange sound, as if unpracticed. He looked somehow deliberately terrible, standing there, despite his slender, unassuming form. There are several bodies up over the hill on the plain. Dead savages, looks like. Connor looked at the man and noticed that he carried no visible gun on him. Somehow, that made Connor trust him even less. Mister, what are you doing out in this country? Connor dared not step off the porch. Something about the man sent his skin to crawling. Those dead ones ain't the only ones around and about. He just had some big sun dance or some damn thing, and they're all whipped up. They come across you, especially with no gun or horse. You're like to be killed, or worse. I'm looking for a horse. The man acted as as if he hadn't heard what Connor had said. Well, mister, I'll sell you a horse as long as you ride it on out of here. Connor was shaking his head. No... The stranger shook his head. I'm looking for my horse. The man took off his hat and he held it in his hands. He's in the company of a man. Him I'm looking for too. I'm not following you, sir. Connor cocked an eyebrow. You're looking for a horse or a man? Both. He replaced his hat and his expression looked something like anger. I am tracking a man that stole my horse, and his trail has led me here. I'm afraid I can't help you there. I ain't seen nobody but the Comanches over yonder, and we didn't talk much. Connor spat. Just me here. Mm, there's another here. The stranger glanced to the house. But neither of you are who I'm looking for. He looked wide around and shrugged. Connor couldn't decide whether the man was awkward, dangerous, or just plain crazy. Well, sir, if there's nothing more I can do for you. Connor posed the question as a warning, all with a lilt of his voice. I really do need to be getting back to work. The odd man looked toward him, then to his ragged feet. He seemed to be measuring something. There was a look on his face as if he wanted to come right up to the porch, but he didn't take another step. 
As if walking an invisible fence line, the stranger kept the same distant stare and started sauntering west. Connor followed him with his eyes and caught sight of a rifle barrel covering the man from the window. As the stranger moved away, the rifle followed him. More quickly than seemed reasonable, the stranger disappeared over the hill and into the plains. Connor? Her voice was quavering, but still held bravery in it. Connor turned to his young wife. Let's get packed up and move off. He took a step back toward the house. The sooner the better. You too, huh? Flint frowned down at the dog. The mongrel was no longer smiling. Connor's mutt was sprawled out under the beating sun in the depth of a shallow draw a full mile away from the homestead, with two arrows punched through it. It was easy to see that it had crawled off a long way to die. Flint knew he was dying too, but that didn't make it easier. He'd always thought a man should do his own dying and not bother others with it. That was the one thing the savages had right, Flint supposed. He looked at the dead dog for a long time, and then moved off. It had been a few days since all the excitement with the Comanches, and Flint hadn't intended to die then. When he'd started to smell the infection and mortification of the burns on his neck, he'd known. Connor and Alejandra had done what they could, but Flint knew reality, even if they didn't, or pretended not to. Flint had been around death long enough to know what it smelled like. And once his nose told him the truth, he accepted it. Still, he wouldn't hasten it. He had thought about it all day. But the thought of the cold octagon bore of the sharps in his open mouth repulsed him. No, he'd be gone soon enough. He thought of his life as he rode and the decisions that had brought him here. He thought about Ohio and the young girl with green eyes. He had wanted her, but she hadn't wanted him. He thought about the man she had wanted and what he'd done to that man. Everything had changed after that. The war, what happened afterward, Missouri, Kansas. It was all a bad dream at this point, and he could see the finality of his life's trajectory somewhere out there in the flat, featureless plain before him. He expected that he'd land with no more of an impact than that of the dog. When the big horse shied suddenly, it shouldn't have been enough to unseat him, but it did. It happened too fast for Flint to see what had caused it before he fell. He was lying on his back when the rattlesnake struck. The sudden revulsion of it was almost enough to make Flint faint. The thing was attached to his neck for a long moment before he shook it off. It struck twice more on his arm and his hand before Flint was able to backpedal away from it. You rotten little prick, Flint spat, horrified and irate. It was coiled and threatening. The buttons buzzed like a wasp nest, and its diamond-shaped head glided back and forth, ready to spring again at any moment from under the shade of the yucca cactus. Flint shuffled further away, his hand searching for the sharps he'd been holding when he fell. He found the big gun, lifted it, took careful aim, and fired. 
The heavy rifle belched flame and devastation, vaporizing the top half of the rattlesnake in an instant. Flint heard bells tolling in his head, and nothing else. Adrenaline coursed through his veins, and he knew that the poison would be too. He stood up, unable to notice the pain of his hopelessly infected burns. He wanted to curse the thing again, but found no voice to do so. Reeling, he looked around himself for the horse, as if it still might carry him away from here to some sort of salvation. That was when he saw the stranger. He bit you. It was almost a condemnation. Flint was frozen in a moment. You really ought to sit down. The man pointed a cadaverous hand toward the ground. Everything in Flint's being told him to flee, run, escape. He sat down heavily upon the earth. You just gonna stand there? Flint's hands shook, and his mind ran away from his consciousness. His body wouldn't obey him. His mind told his hands to cock the rifle and point it. Instead, his hand dropped it to the grass at one side as if he'd never need it again. The man just looked at him. I'm just going to stand here. The man studied Flint as if he were inspecting a piece of art. Are you a U.S. Marshal? A bounty man? Flint could tell the game was up. He knew and also did not know that none of this mattered now. Marshal, the stranger repeated the words back to him. Bounty man. He seemed to think about it for a long time. There's a price to be paid. I'm just here to collect it. Flint grimaced, the answer unsettling him. The man's face was fading. No, not just his face. Everything was losing color and brightness. Flint's perplexed silence was his only response to the man's words. You stole my horse. The man pointed a long finger, still looking at Flint as if he was reading a book. No one has ever taken my horse before. Shaking his head, he laughed. It came out as a grisly rattle. I think I'm dying. Flint was hardly listening anymore. He couldn't even hear his own voice. I think so, too. You ready to go? Go. Go where? Flint wasn't sure if the words came out of his mouth or his mind. I ain't no use to you dead. The stranger patted the neck of his pale mount, watching Flint go, still watching. His eyes were all Flint could still see. You taking me to Kansas? Missouri? Where? Does it matter? It does to me. You go where you want. It's no concern of mine. The stranger stepped up onto his horse and rode away without another word. Flint tried for a breath, but could not find it. There was none left to be had.
A year later, a family's wagon rattled along the trail. A boy scuttled behind, swinging a wooden stick like Excalibur. He imagined himself a knight from the storybooks his mother loved so much. He spun and pirouetted with imagined grace and precision. This way, then that, he snapped the sword at invented villains, dragons, giants, evil things. Turn by turn, he vanquished them all. His father called, and the boy looked toward the wagon. He would go, but first there stood one last yucca cactus bloom, one more adversary to conquer. Advancing, the boy slashed twice, dreaming a dark and terrible warrior before him. His chest swelled with adolescent pride as the yucca bloom scattered to the wind. As he stood over his fallen enemy, the rattlesnake bones did not move. They did not lash out at the boy's leg. They did not sink their fangs into his thigh. They did not end the boy's short life. Trotting off back toward the wagon, the boy went. He imagined himself a knight, a prince, a king. He would be strong, exceptional, a hero to men, a champion of the weak and the helpless, a true hero, just like in the stories. The end. Yeah.